You're listening to The Sweeper, the pan-European football podcast that brings you all the news from the 55 UEFA nations and sometimes a little bit beyond. On this episode of The Sweeper, we chat about a bonkers weekend of Nordic title races, the quadrennial Terunga Games in Kiribati, and our upcoming trip to Paris to see Tahitian champions A.S. Piret in the Coupe de France. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Sweeper podcast with myself, Lee Wingate, and my fellow host, Paul Watson. It feels a bit strange to be recording online again, doesn't it, after that in-person bonus pod last time? Yeah, it feels like a dream. A dream. Like that we would be in in the same place, but in that weird, very posh bar that clearly should have kicked us out. And uh, (laughs) now we're back to our, our normal locations back online but the show must go on nonetheless and the show today has to start with some of the things that happened in Scandinavia at the weekend I think. Um, Did you follow what was going on in the Swedish title races? Uh, I did I did so I um, I had an eye on this and and every with every new development I kind of thought this this must be it this must be over Uh, but it was yeah one of one of the most dramatic final days I ever remember. Um, I think you probably could better job of talking through it than I do but I just remember the uh the chaos of the backwards and forwards who was going to win the title yeah so this was the Allsvenskan the the men's league that we're going to start with uh, this was particularly interesting I think because Elfsborg and Malmo were going into the final day playing against each other and with Malmo three points behind with a very close goal difference as well I think they might have even been a level on goal difference going into the final day and that of course meant that a win for Malmo would take them not only three points higher, but also give them plus one goal and take Elfsburg down minus one goal and, and therefore win the league. And that's that's essentially what happened. It was a 1-0 win. I don't think it was uh, the best game, but Malmo ended up sneaking in, having been out of the running for, for the last few months to win the league by two goals on the final day. And was it was there not a delay to the game because fans were causing chaos? Because I, I feel like the game went on a lot longer than it should have done. When they, the players were taken off and back on at some point. All the other games in the Allsvenskan finished on time, and this one just said interrupted. To give you a little rundown of what happened, there's a tweet from Seb underscore Stanek who said, why was the second half in the title deciding match between Malmö and Elfsborg delayed? Uh, in short, first, Elfsborg fans set fire to a net. Then Malmö fans went pyro mad. The fire alarm went off. Fans were told to exit, but nobody did. Fire trucks arrived. Situation sorted. Game back on. It's a little worrying, isn't it? That the fire alarms would go off and they just, nobody moved. So the officials must have just thought, ah, well. (laughs) Probably should have, you know, it's just a little bit worrying that the the fans basically overruled the fire service. But um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think so too. Um, On the football though. It's a bit of a disappointment, isn't it? Because I think as champions of the underdog, it would have been lovely to see Elfsborg win a first title since 2012 rather than the record champions getting another one. Yeah, I was definitely rooting for Elfsborg. It was a bit of a disappointment. It, as you say, it was a funny one because um, on the final day, Elfsborg were pretty much the favourites, but in general terms, they were the underdog. So yeah, I, I did want them to win. I also, I'm not sure if this is actually true, but someone said their stadium is called colloquially 
is called the Elfsborg Fortress. And that just sounds really cool. So I kind of wanted them to win it. Plus, their nickname is the Elegance, which is a is Yeah, the Elegance. Yeah. I don't know what it is in Swedish, but um, yeah, it's a brilliant nickname. I like that. The drama was even greater in the women's top flight on the very same day, the Damasvenskan. Uh, there was very much a hold my beer moment there where the women saw what had happened in the men's league and decided to, to go one further. It wasn't quite as dramatic in the sense that the top two weren't playing each other, but it was decided by goal difference. Hammerby and Hecken went into the final day, level on points, narrowly apart on goal difference. Hecken won 4-0, probably thinking they'd done enough to get the job done, but Hammerby won 2-0 and lifted the title by one single goal. That oh. was it. It's cruel, isn't it? You think if you win 4-0 on the final day, yeah, in that situation, you've probably done enough. It probably was nice that Hammerby won that title in the end because they hadn't won the league for 38 years. So to see sort of the pitch invasions and the whole atmosphere after the game, I, I certainly didn't begrudge them lifting that. No, not at all. And um, in terms of yeah, feeling a bit aggrieved and thinking you might have won the title with a last day win doesn't get much worse than the Norwegian third tier, which is confusingly the second division, where Lynn went into the final day level with Egersund. It was uh, both playing, both needed to to win, theoretically, to, to win the title. Uh, Lynn did win, and they didn't just win. They won 10-1. But it would turn out that that one they conceded would cost them the title because Egersund won 5-0. So that one goal they conceded made made the entire difference so that's a pretty pretty harsh situation imagine watching your team win 10-1 on the final day when all you needed to do was win to win the title and then still not winning it it's it's brutal did they win this on goal difference or goal scored on goal difference and had they not conceded that goal I believe the goal difference would have been tied on 51 and then Lynn would have had one more goal scored than Egerton. So I think that would be the deciding factor. Someone can always correct us if we're wrong, because I know some leagues do it on games played against each other. Mm-hmm. But as, as it looks to me, and my understanding of it is that by winning 10-1 instead of 10-0, that meant that their goal difference was one inferior and cost them the title. If they had just not conceded that goal, they would have had the same goal difference, but with one more goal scored. So I think I think that would have that would have won it. So now they have to go into the playoffs um, because there's only one team promoted. I think there's a good argument for that league having two teams promoted, given that both teams are on you know 62 points. They're way ahead of the other two teams. But uh, now imagine winning 10-1 on the final day, thinking you've won the title, and then having to go into the playoffs is it's pretty brutal. Someone did point out to us on Twitter that. There has been a closer title race, a top flight title race in a Nordic country in the past. This was Norway Herring. He says, in 2004, Rosenborg won the Norwegian top division on more goals scored than runners-up Valerenga. They were tied on goal difference. And I think that comment in particular has got our minds um, in action a little bit, thinking about potentially the closest title races in history that we can recall. You mentioned just before that some leagues actually are determined by head-to-head record before goal difference and goal scored and all of that stuff. That's actually what happened in Austria a few years ago because of an absolutely balmy final day in the second division. This was in 2020. You had two teams, SV Reed and Austria Klagenfurt, both going for promotion and one goal apart in the table on the final day. 
Austria Klagenfurt had invested a lot that year. So they really needed to go up to make that investment worthwhile to sort of make the gamble pay off. And they won 6-0. So they were absolutely certain that that, that would do, that that would be the, the goal swing that they required. Only for Reed to go and win 9-0. Oh, that is what? That seems really, really harsh, isn't it? I saw someone commenting on these crazy scorelines this weekend saying, it looks like a clear case of match fixing. And the, the, the response was brilliant. People saying, no, it's probably the least likely match fixing in history, isn't it, really? <laughs> when a team loses 9-0 in this situation, it's like, no. But it's just, you get these games where one team, it means everything in the world, and one team, it really doesn't matter anymore, right? And and, and suddenly you get these crazy scorelines at the end of the season. I think it just happens like that. Well, that's what happened in this particular case in Austria. There were allegations of match fixing and that led to the Austrian league changing the way that positions are determined from goal difference to head to head. So that rule change came into effect because of that final day of the season. And I think you can make a claim for it being the best way and not the best way to decide a league title because the league title surely is about how you perform over the the whole season, which would be the goal difference. But then also when it's between two teams, you kind of want to know which is the better of those two teams out of those two when they've played each other. So yeah, I don't really know what the best best way to do it is. It's true. I remember, so this is this one that sticks in my mind is that in, in Italy, in Serie A, it used to be that if the two teams at the top finished on the same number of points, they would have a playoff match. But this only ever happened once, and it was in 1963. Bologna and Inter both finished on 54 points and had a playoff match in Rome at the Stadio Olimpico to decide the title. And actually, Bologna won it, which is, I think, why it remains in my mind, because I lived in Bologna for a while and still sort of a thing that people remember fondly. I'm torn on that. In a way, what an amazing spectacle if two teams finish on the same points to have like a playoff final effectively for the league. But in another way, it feels a little bit American or not to be too disparaging to American sport, but it feels a bit a little bit like contriving a, a big event, whereas part of the point of a, a, a season surely is that the you don't know if it's going to be won, you know, by a scrappy goal or, a, you know, something something really anticlimactic. Can you think of uh, any other title races in more recent times that have been decided in such a dramatic fashion? Well, the the one that the one that we always grew up with was the Michael Thomas one, wasn't it? The Arsenal Liverpool one. But I don't actually remember that very much. So my memory of that one, I was about four or five. My memory of it was that we we watched it because it used to be on actual normal person TV in those days, and I watched it with my brother who was older and understood what was going on. And I only remember the commentary of it's up for grabs now, but that's only from years of it being replayed. It's up for grabs now. I think was the the famous commentary, wasn't it, for mm-hmm. that goal? But I actually now would struggle to even tell you what had happened for that for that uh, final day. It was Arsenal winning the title from Liverpool, was it not? Yeah, so that was a case of the two of them playing on the final day. And I think Arsenal needed to win by two clear goals. And then they got that second one where you referenced the commentary right at the very end, like in, in the last minutes to win the title. When that one ended up being won on goals scored because they both had a plus 37 goal difference. So that's the sort of narrow margins it came down to. That's really interesting. Yeah, that see that um just sort of lived somewhere at the back of my mind. I suppose a lot of our sort of memories of Eng- English title races will have been supplanted by the famous sort of Manchester City win 
uh, was it the 97th minute that they won their that title in and you know that's sort of become the one that everyone talks about but um yeah growing up it was definitely that one before we get too many shouts of stop talking about the Premier League, that's mm. too mainstream. I'll throw us over to the Azerbaijan title race in 2021. <laughs> when this pod very first uh, started out, our then presenter and now producer Tom brought us the story of Nefchi Baku winning the league in the final minute of the final game of the season directly against their rivals Karabag. So this was at a point in time where you could watch the Azeri games on YouTube. So he actually decided to tune in for this sort of title-defining game at the end of the season. And there was a header from a corner in the 90th minute, which completely changed the course of the title. It didn't end up being won on goal difference or any close margins like that, but it was just a classic case of robbing your rivals at the last. And I think it was particularly welcome because Karabag just win seemingly every title in Azerbaijan so quite nice to see another team just sort of dash in there and, and nip it out of their hands yeah that's brilliant I'll throw in an honorable mention for a game that's very the sweeper so in terms of a memorable title race um it's maybe not quite on topic but it's very close it was um 2002 in Madagascar and there was a four team round robin to decide who's going to be national champions in the first game I believe there were some really controversial refereeing decisions. And it, there were two teams who were basically going for it. They were the favourites. So it was AS Adema and Esso Lemrin. And they were fighting it out for this title. And there were really controversial decisions uh, in the first game. And so the Emrin players who were the victims of those decisions decided to go out and throw the next game by way of protest, which would actually basically give the title to this other team, uh, to AS Adema. And they did it by con- conceding 149 own goals. Yeah, they just followed it through to its logical conclusion. They just kept bouncing the ball into their own goal. But the amazing thing, really, is that they they saw it through. They managed to get the ball in there 149 times. It's just an amazing story because the opposition players at the time didn't really understand what was going on for a while. And after a certain point, the opposition players even tried to stop them scoring own goals, which was a really weird because they, they kind of couldn't understand what was going on or why they were doing it. But it is still, I think, recognised by the Guinness Book of Records as the biggest ever defeat. But it is technically a sort of title playoff that went awry. It's a bit difficult for the opposition team to stop them doing that, though, because by the rules of the game, you have to start in your own half. So if somebody takes a kickoff and just whacks it back to their goalkeeper, <laughs> you... <laughs> they're just facing this mad sprint to get towards the goalkeeper. That's 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 such a weird, such a weird story that one. But I do remember that scoreline, the that one hundred and forty nine nil. And I also think that is very on brand for us to casually throw in a story from a. Uh, Sorry, was that Madagascar or Mozambique? That's Mad- Madagascar, yeah, Madagascar. And um, yeah, absolutely amazing. And um, if you ever read up about this, some of the players who conceded the goals as a protest, especially the captain, Mamisoa Razafindrakoto, uh, it's not an easy name to say, a lot of them aren't in Madagascar, actually became kind of heroes for it. It was sort of seen as standing up against the injustices of the of the refereeing decision. So I, they didn't actually get vilified so much. Uh, I think on the day, the fans were not delighted. And, and there were there were bans and there were, there were all sorts of things happen afterwards. But I think in a way, it was sort of seen as like they were standing up against corruption in the league. So it was a really interesting one. Uh, let's round off this Nordic football segment with a few more headlines because believe it or not we've not really even scratched the surface of all the stuff that happened in Scandinavia this weekend and in recent weeks so in Sweden Göteborg scored a 95th minute goal 
to avoid relegation in the final minute of the season. In Denmark, Hvidovre won their first Super League game in 26 years. So they're finally off the um, Europe's winless list, the, the Twitter account that tracked winless teams across Europe. Buda Glimpse, another title to the Arctic Circle for them. That's three titles they've won in Norway now. At KFUM, who we talked about on the pod a few weeks back, do you remember the YMCA team? They have been promoted to the Elitas area, so we will have a YMCA team in the top flight next year. And finally, uh, one to finish off with, Paul, in Finland, the Sexy Pants are down. Sexy oh. Pants have been relegated. <laughs> I bet you just wanted to say that for so long, didn't you? I bet you're watching them above the relegation zone thinking, come on, got to say the Sexy Pants are down. <laughs> yeah, they finally are, which is a bit of a shame, but they go down to the Finnish fourth tier. All right, that will do for part one. We'll be back in a second for Paul Watson's Crazy World Tour with stories from Africa, Asia and Oceania. We're very glad to have you here enjoying this podcast about UEFA's 55 lovable leagues. But did you know that we've also got a podcast which covers one of those leagues in particular? It's called The Other Bundesliga and it covers our travels from around the grounds in Austria, where some of the sweeper team are based. Now, why would you listen to a podcast about Austrian football? Well, not only is it a beautiful country to travel around the grounds, but it's also a European top 10 league for now. And in Man City's Erling Haaland, Manchester United's Rasmus Hoyland, Liverpool's Dominic Soboslai, Dortmund's Marcel Sabitzer, FC Bayern's Diot Upamecano, to name a few, you've got players all across Europe's biggest leagues who've come through the brilliant Austrian Bundesliga. You can find the podcast on Twitter or on any podcast platform by searching for The Other Bundesliga. For now, though, on with the sweeper. Welcome back to part two of the Sweeper podcast with some stories from outside Europe. And uh, our patrons have voted that they want to hear most of all from Kiribass. 27% of uh, our patrons have decided that the Tirunga Games will be the lead story for this episode. So, Paul, what are they? The Tirunga Games are an incredible event, really. It's um, every four years, it's the National Games of Kiribati. And so it's not just football, but obviously that's what I tend to focus on the most. Uh, it's other sports as well. But from our purposes, what's really exciting is you have a football championships in Kiribati. And for a lot of people, I imagine Kiribati isn't a place you know a huge amount about. And that, that would have been the same for me some years ago till I sort of came into that part of the world. There are 32 atolls, I believe, in, um, in Kiribati. And then one other island that isn't technically an atoll, but that's very technical. But basically what, what matters is you have 23, I believe, inhabited atolls that compete in a football tournament in, in Tarawa, the biggest island. And so 23 teams have to come in either by boat or by small plane to take part in this national tournament every four years. Now, what was weird this year, this is our men's and women's side, they, they, they do this tournament. And what was weird this year was that until about 10 days ago, Kiribati were headed for the Pacific Games, which is the big tournament taking part in the region. And they'd even been put in a, in a group and they were going to be, you know, the men's team were going to be competing and it looked quite daunting, their draw. But, you know, they, they were training for it. They had games between Kiribati's sort of probable squad and other people on the islands so they could get to play against them, basically, and things like that. So it looked very much like, you know, this was what was going to happen, that they were going to specific games. And just very suddenly they pulled out and they were taken out of the draw uh, and no one could really understand what had happened. And what had happened was that they hadn't realised Tirunga was taking place. And Tirunga is more important to people there, I think, than the Pacific Games. It's a chance to, like for these very small islands to compete. But it's this very big part of the culture. 
so they basically pulled out of the Pacific Games in order to, to, to make sure Teronga took place. And if you see any videos or pictures from it, it's an amazing event. There's just people everywhere watching these games and, and on these incredibly rock-hard pitches. They look formidable rock-hard pitches um, in Kiribati. But people absolutely love it. Sadly, my, my favourite is Christmas Island, or it's kind of spelt Kiramati, but it's Christmas Island, were eliminated because uh, they were the ones that I like to cheer, uh, cheer on. And that's partly just because in Kiramas Island, there is a place called London and a place called Paris and a place called Banana. <laughs> <laughs> Banana, brilliant. Yeah. So I always cheer them on. But no, they're out. Uh, they're out now. But it's, it's, it's an incredible event. One thing that we at The Sweeper love is obviously teams traveling long distances to play football matches. And I must admit, before we came into this episode, I didn't really know anything about Kiribati. Uh, but I found out that the distance between its eastern and westernmost points is 4,564 kilometers, which is roughly the same distance from London to Nova Scotia in Canada. So... I mean, how do they do this? Like, I presume that they don't have much funding to get all of the sort of coaches, players, teams, stuff across. So this must be very expensive. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Uh, because it's Terunga, there are funds they can dip into. Also, there are players, I believe, representing their islands who normally live on Tarawa, the, the, the biggest island. So most people do tend to gravitate towards Tarawa at certain points in their lives, I think, if they're from Kiribati. So it's a bit like if you had... A team representing Blackburn and you could pick people from London who are from Blackburn you know there is a way to get around flying literally everyone but as far as I understand it a vast number of people have come over on small boats which are pretty dicey journeys they're not journeys you want to make it's a fascinating battle against the odds because they don't get a lot of funding they are an OFC associate member so they're the lowest level of member that that you can be in a federation and they get very little funding they get about i think thirty thousand us dollars no a bit like that but thirty thousand aussie dollars i think per year and that's it and i think a lot of that is prescribed they have to buy certain equipment with it their, their goal is to get full membership which obviously makes a huge difference but whether they can do that i'm not sure and pulling out of the pacific games is not necessarily a good look if you want to be talking to ofc about membership it's it may be seen as actually quite a negative step that I just want to come back to something you said before, which I found quite funny. So they didn't realize that the Pacific Games and the Tarunga Games were taking place at the same time. These should be pretty prominent events in their calendar, shouldn't they? That's that's all that that's all I've been told. Whether that's true or not, I, I don't know. You'd have thought it's a bit like the Olympic year and not realizing there's a football tournament that's going to clash with it. I'm not entirely sure. For Kiribati, it's a fascinating place. I mean, they've not played a game since Pacific Games in 2011 as an as a national team but I've had a fair amount of contact with them with my work in Micronesia and there are some amazing people working on that in that FA but there's a real sense of them not necessarily getting a lot of guidance a lot of help despite the fact they finally got into you know this big moment where they got into FIFA or into OFC into FIFA sort of realms they also tragically lost their the president of the Kiribati Football Federation Kiribati Islands Football Federation um he passed away you know relatively young last year uh, in fact not last year a few months ago Martin Tolfinger and he did a huge amount of the work on on getting football there where it needs to be yeah he passed away quite suddenly it's left a real gap he was a real powerhouse actually I think possibly it was it's his loss that's caused some of this maybe this this confusion because that that was a big problem for them to be dealing with that just months before the team should have left Let's move on now to Eritrea because it is uh, an international break coming up and Eritrea won't be taking part 
in their World Cup qualifier against Morocco. Can you perhaps shed a little bit more light on what's going on there? Yeah, and this was um, this was uh, something that was 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 going backwards and forwards for a little while. So Eritrea had a very daunting task, you know, drawn in in their World Cup qualifiers against the likes of Morocco, and and you think, well, that's probably one of the biggest underdog ties of of any World Cup qualification campaign. And Eritrea had lost their world ranking. They don't even have a FIFA ranking because they haven't competed for, um, well, years now, I think, since 2020. And in the build-up to this game, I was talking to some people in Eritrea, or certainly people from Eritrea, saying, you know, how are you feeling about this this game with Morocco? Like, you're going to be real underdogs. And the feeling was that a lot of people didn't think this team was going to go. And the reason for that is that they needed a permission. So Eritrea is one of the world's most, I guess, repressive. It's it's one of the one of the toughest, most authoritarian regimes in, in the world. And I think it rates very low on sort of um, freedom indexes. So they, in order to get a team to travel, the FA had to get permission from the sports commissioner, I think he's technically called. He's sort of the guy that would have to say, yes, you can go and compete. And he just didn't give it and he didn't give it and he didn't give it. But he didn't, he also didn't not give it. And it got to a point, I think, where he either said, finally, no, you can't go, or it just got too late. But the the, the news broke from a very good French journalist, Romain Molina. If you don't follow him, you should definitely follow him. And he broke the news that they had not got this permission and they'd already pulled out of the Morocco game a few weeks ago. Uh, and it it proved to be the case. And it's, it's basically because there's a high chance of Eritrean players not coming back to Eritrea Um a lot of the time in the past, I think players have just uh, used this as a chance to leave the country and fled and taken um, refuge in other countries. So that I think is what they were worried about happening, and that's why they're not they're not taking part against um, Morocco. And it's it's a real shame for some of their players because well for all of their players, but they've got some really talented players there, and um, it's such a shame that they're not getting this chance to to compete. And um, there's actually a guy called Ali Suleiman who was was brilliant for them i watched him play in um i'm trying to remember which youth tournament it was he's playing in youth tournament quite recently uh, and he plays his football in ethiopia i think it was the the, the um kekafa or yes uh challenge cup and under 23 tournament he was absolutely brilliant scored a hat trick against ethiopia and he obviously now doesn't get to play uh none of them do and it's just such a backward step for them i think and um really sad when you think about all the nations in the world that are going to compete in this tournament in one way or another however short it is it's such a shame to see a country just not even not even enter if you look online for football players defecting on trips abroad Eritrea is one that just comes up time and time again there have been numerous instances of youth players women's players men's players and uh, apparently in 2019 as a response to that the Eritrean FA or government or, or both introduced this need to pay a 7,000 US dollar bond as a guarantee before traveling to away matches. So that seems to be how little trust there is that these people won't come back, which is pretty crazy in itself. It is. And yet um, there are reports at the moment from Somalia's national team camp. As I say, they're just reports that um, one of the center backs in the Somalian team, I won't name uh, him for obvious reasons, has allegedly disappeared from the from their camp which is in Tunisia and intends to, to try and get into Europe so you know I don't know if that's true or not but I know that it's certainly a thing that has happened and I'm sure will continue to happen so it's a, it's a sort of sad self-fulfilling prophecy when it comes to Eritrea you know you get a very repressive regime and they say you know 
we don't want people to go outside Eritrea because they won't come back. And because you've created that situation where that's the feeling, maybe they wouldn't have come back if they'd left. So, yeah, it's, it's just on a football level, very sad, especially when you see some of the talented players they've got, who, ironically, several of them are not playing in Eritrea at the moment anyway. So they were not flight risks, but they will not they will not get a chance now to compete. One country that will be playing in a World Cup qualifier, uh, actually today, on the day of release, I think they're uh, playing against Qatar, is Afghanistan. And we talked about Afghanistan a few weeks back because the former coach, Abdullah Al-Matairi, had tried to forfeit his team the match and was then sacked. But Afghanistan still won against Mongolia. Mm. But there have been some developments since, haven't there? Yeah, so what, what's really interesting with this, I think, um, since since that, that chaos, so the, the coach went and the federation said, look, we need to appoint someone else. And amazingly, they've managed to attract Ashley Westwood, um, who uh, there's actually a couple of Ashley Westwoods. Uh, I learned subsequently to tweet you about this. Uh, the Ashley Westwood I'm talking about, you pro- you might remember, he had a very like long journeyman career in, in Britain. He played for all sorts of clubs. I remember him playing for Sheffield Wednesday. Um, he played for Crew. He's one of these players who just was around a lot. He then actually went to India and has done a good job in several coaching roles in India. And he's taken this job on. And it must be one of the most daunting jobs in history to take on. So he he arrived in Kabul, as you do, shook hands with the president, took this job on. And he was told, I presume, that you've got about 10 days till you're going to face Qatar, you know, one of the strongest sides in Asia. And your entire senior national team effectively is on strike. They're not they're not going to play. They've all said they will only play when the president leaves because they believe he's corrupt. So he's come into this job. and now is seemingly scrambling to find domestic-based players in Afghanistan who will play. And I think he they will get a squad together. But um, they already would have been strong outsiders against Qatar. I would now say they may be one of the biggest outsiders in all of the qualification matches we're going to witness. I think the bookies have got them at something like 1 to 250. Uh, Qatar won to 250 to beat them. So it's going to be an incredible baptism of fire. But you know, in a way, I, I would say, I would have said, you know, huge respect for Ashley Westwood for taking the job on. But on the other hand, I think, you know, you don't want to be associated with this regime. Um, and I, I'm quite baffled by who who advised someone to take a job with a regime that is widely despised by their, the the people from Afghanistan who, who love football. Even like going beyond that, the fact that they sh- they have stopped their women's team competing and by all rights, shouldn't actually be competing at all. Um, they should be suspended from FIFA. So even beyond that, to, 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 to want to be part of a team that all the senior players don't want to play for, is it's a crazy job to take, I think, to be honest. I'm not sure if I understood that correctly. So did he not know about all of the players who are on strike before taking the job? I, I can only presume he did. I mean, it would be a crazy thing not to know because, I mean, it's widely available in the public domain. But a part of me wonders if he's been badly advised. I, I just struggle to believe that any coach, you know, and he is a, obviously a good coach. He's not, he's not, you know, a Paul Watson of this world trying to get a first international coaching job at 25. You know, he's he's an established coach. He's a good coach. I'm, I'm struggling to understand it. If he wasn't told that these players are on strike, then that's crazy. He couldn't find that out or someone advising him didn't find that out if he did know they're on strike then that's what a job to take on I'm, I'm kind of baffled by that too before we return to europe in part three we're going to finish off part two with a listener email you may remember paul on the last episode i told you the story of the terrible birthday that ended up on a tour of a concrete factory 
and we have received quite a, well we received a number of emails but we've received a particularly remarkable one from ian bruce from whitchurch in england now it's quite long i've i've sort of shortened it so forgive me for doing so ian but it is incredible so i'll read it out to you now ian says Back in 2019, I convinced a mate we should spend a week in Uzbekistan to celebrate his 50th birthday whilst watching local football and seeing the Silk Road sites. As I was still trying to achieve the ambition of seeing football in 100 countries, I then suggested that we book a flight into Dushanbe in the early hours of the Saturday morning, gambling that there would be football to watch before we headed up to the Uzbek border. When the Tajik fixtures were eventually released, it turned out that they had a friendly with Afghanistan on the Friday night, which we'd missed by five hours. So there were no top flight games scheduled, but I did uncover evidence that a handful of second and third level teams would be playing. I could not find venues or kickoff times, so fired off emails and eventually got a reply from a man called Syod who said, I do know the information you require as I am a referee in one of the games. You're welcome to join me. We met Syed in a little office in the depths of the National Stadium, and unbelievably, he had organized a driver for us, as well as an interpreter in the form of Gulmarod, a colleague and fellow FIFA referee. We were driven for three plus hours down to a little village near the Afghan border, and then watched a fiercely contested local derby. We then joined the match officials for their post-match meal before making the journey home. Next day, we were keen to watch another match in Yovan, on arrival, we chatted to the match officials whilst we sat among the 800-strong crowd, only to be ushered to the far end of the ground where tables had been hastily arranged and loaded with drinks, fruit, sweets and cakes. We were to be the guests of honour and were shortly joined by the town mayor. And then, <laughs> just before he finishes the email, this is the last sentence, and I thought, how has somebody else had the same experience as me? So he finishes off by saying, Mahir Yovan were outclassed that day, but the atmosphere was great. And at the end of the game, the club president met us, led us to his gleaming 4WD and took us for a tour of his nearby concrete factory. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could create a group of you. It feels like this is an experience that speaks to a lot of people. Maybe you need some sort of support network. <laughs> yeah, group therapy. I mean, it does sound like that's by contrast. That does sound like an incredible trip. That's um, that's lovely. I, I love stories like that, and I think it's beautiful when uh, when people get sort of uh, into into a random country like that and just get brought into the culture as if they're special guests. That's lovely. I mean, the the hospitality there sounds absolutely phenomenal. So maybe we need to uh, sort of switch uh, our bucket list around and and head over to Tajikistan before we start exploring Europe a little further. Yeah, maybe I'm 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 open to it. I um I always found that that part of the world I never travelled in it properly. I ended up in Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan for a few days here and there. But I found it a fascinating fascinating place actually. Um, I would love to travel more there. So yeah, maybe that's our maybe that's what on our list for for sweeper trips at some point. Thanks very much to Ian anyway for getting in touch with that fantastic email. And if you've had just any bizarre football trip stories like that, then get in touch, sweeperpod at gmail.com. Uh, and if we get some more that are even 50% as good as Ian's, then we'll read them out on air. But I think that will do for part two. We'll be back in part three for a return to Europe and uh, a reveal of where we will be heading at the weekend.
Welcome back to the third and final part of The Sweeper. Now, as you have probably gathered from the first two segments of the show, a vast amount of research goes into our pod. If you want to support us in our endeavors, Patreon membership makes a bigger difference than we can put into words. And now we've got a new feature for our patrons too, our niche football newsletter. The first one came out yesterday and goes into detail on the Swedish title races we talked about in part one. Second tier Japanese team Vonfere Kofu topping their Asian Champions League group and Tionville's upcoming 33,000 kilometer round trip to New Caledonia for a Coupe de France tie. What else do patrons get, Paul? Well, they get to be part of our Discord group. And that's a community of people who are, like us, obsessed with underdogs. It's it's really nice. It's a community of people who share chats about games they're going to, shirts they've bought, books they've read. Yeah, I I love being part of it. And it's it's really fun. They also get to vote on what our stories are going to be. And every now and again, we we give away a, a shirt courtesy of our friends at Surprise Shirts. There's more stuff too, actually. I, I'm writing my Up Pompeii sequel, which goes out on there. Lee's written a piece about the, um, the Salzburg derby. So there'll be more written stuff going on, as well as some really exciting sort of plans that we're almost ready to, to disclose. And also, don't forget the bonus pods. If you decide that you want to hear from the sweeper more than once every fortnight you can get our bonus podcasts in the weeks in between as well so all of that for only five pounds or six euro per month it's the same price as a pint would set you back in london as we found out last week so if you like the sound of that and are keen to read our newsletter please do consider signing up at patreon.com forward slash sweeper pod on to the stories for part three uh, starting with uh the austrian bundesliga pool because i've completed it Yes, this was a big moment. And you sent me a photo that made me laugh very hard because it seems like they really rolled out the red carpet for you with your seat. <laughs> well, yeah, the seat, they certainly didn't. So what happened was we went we went down to Linz to the um, uh, the derby. It was Blauweiss Linz, the promoted team against Lask, who I'm sure many people will know for their uh, European endeavours in recent years. And I say we, it was myself and producer Tom. And um, it was a, a landmark day for me because I was completing the final stadium in the Bundesliga that I hadn't visited. And it was uh, the Hoffmann Personalstadion, it's called. It's built on a furniture store or it's, you know, it's on top of a furniture store, um, which is, you know, quite a a unique quirk that we like. Um, But I went down there and uh, got given my seat in the media section only to find, as you referred to there, that there was just a massive TV in the front. And usually... Uh, these are, are quite helpful because they show you replays and, and whatever's happened in the action. But they usually like small screens, so they don't obscure your view. But mine was just a massive screen right in front of my seat. So I just spent, basically spent the first half before I was able to move it. When the ball was in one half of the pitch, I was poking my head one side around the TV. And when it was in the other half, I was doing the same on the other side. So uh, yeah, less than ideal. But I did uh, accidentally get granted full access to the entire stadium so what happens usually when you're accredited at a game is that you get access to the press working room the stands and you know you might get access to I don't know yeah the press conference usually and the the mixed zone but I looked at the key on my accreditation and they had mistakenly given me access to all VIP areas of the stadium and the changing rooms what <laughs> i imagine you took full advantage did you just, just prancing around the changing room yelling at them at half time <laughs> i i thought it would be best just to you know 
leave them in peace. So I, 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 you know, imagine if you just get a journalist walk into the changing rooms, they'd be like, who the hell are you and what are you doing here? But just, just to see the halftime team talks, I, I do slightly regret the fact that, um, that I didn't, I didn't go for it. Maybe if you'd looked enough like you should be there, they'd have just ignored you. I don't yeah. know. Just, just sort of yeah. stand stand on the end the edge of the or just put on one of the shirts and see if you could get on the bench. <laughs> Fake it until you make it kind of thing. <laughs> um, this was, as I say, my twelfth Bundesliga stadium, a bit of a landmark. Uh, but producer Tom went to Hartberg the day before. Now Hartberg are the team that have all the sponsors on their shirts, including a picture of a sperm. I, I'm pretty sure I've I've talked about them before. That's because they're sponsored by the company Profertila, a fertility company. Uh, but Tom completed it. We've both been doing the pod together for five years and Tom completed it one day before me. And I, I can't help thinking he did it just for a laugh. But yeah, I was not the first in our in our three man team to to complete the challenge. That's really harsh. He obviously did do that just to spite you, I suppose. So it could have got really nasty, you trying to call in a threat to get the game off, all kinds of stuff. One last thing I wanted to mention before we move on from this game is that there was a minute silence held before kickoff for a former player. Uh, his name is Rafael Duamena. And you may have seen online that uh, a player collapsed in Albania at the weekend in the top of the table clash between Ignatia and Partizani and died. And this was a former player of Blauweiss Linz. They held a, a minute's silence for him. The player in question, only 28 years old. And it's a particularly sad story because he had a defibrillator, like an implant, put in a couple of years back when his heart issues were detected. Because during his time in Austria, he actually collapsed on the pitch. Oh. And so this led to uh, his condition being detected uh, an implant being inserted but i think it was last year he chose to have the defibrillator removed saying that uh, he had no confidence in the technology anymore and uh, then this weekend sadly passed away so that's a an incredibly sad story god that is really sad I, i did see he passed away i didn't realize any of the backstory that is tremendously sad um yeah that's really awful to hear and i i suppose this is just a a thing that can happen is it genetically for a certain number of people that they can be a victim of of sort of sudden heart problems for no apparent reason often they're you know incredibly fit people right this is just a, mm. a horrible freak event is it I, I suppose yeah and i think in his case i'm not totally sure on this but i think i did read somewhere that he ended up partly in albania because he was allowed to play there because i think he had a previous move might have even been to the premier league that collapsed when um, yeah. when this condition was detected so i think he was playing in a place where he could play football where, where yeah where he probably shouldn't have been allowed to i'm guessing if the if the like player welfare standards are high enough you probably because mm. that was that was the question i was going to ask you see we've seen you know multiple players careers actually ended early by uh these kind of heart problems and there's never really a question of getting around it is it? it's just um that's a horrible tragic thing but you you just stop playing so yeah very sad very sad Um, Certainly a sad story. Let's move on now to Northern Ireland, where a a historic and memorable penalty shootout has taken place. What springs to your mind, Paul, when you think back over the years of watching football? uh, What are some of the more memorable penalty shootouts or or penalty incidents you've, you've seen? So we we had one on the pod in one of our early days, did we not, that had gone an incredible length and I can't remember the exact details but was it a was it 
because Jazeera United from Malta had won a penalty shootout that had gone on for something crazy uh, against, I think it was against Glen Torin, wasn't it? Um, that they won something like 14-13 uh, and it was a really, really long one. So I remember that one very clearly. But is this one you're talking about actually longer than than 14-13? Because I think that was a record at the time. Uh, yeah, this one is apparently, according to the BBC, the third longest penalty shootout of all time. Uh, this was in the Northern Irish League Cup quarterfinals where Coleraine beat Ballymena uh, 18-17 in a Ooh. shootout that involved 44 kicks, which is quite interesting to me because if you think about it, on a penalty shootout, you take five each and then it goes to sudden death. And if nine penalties were missed in total, that must have meant that during sudden death, it was either score, score or miss, miss. Because as soon yeah. as one team scores and the other misses, you know, that's it. It's over. So they must have been remarkably consistent with with their sort of when one missed, the other then missed. That's amazing. Yeah, I'd love that. I should find this, the the footage of that. Something really psychological about that, isn't it? Um, about the, the team that takes second when it gets to that point. And the fact you're either always, you know, you've either got the kick to win it or the kick to not lose it. Whereas the, the ones going first surely have some sort of advantage that, you know, at least it's not a definite win or lose thing. Mm. Um, I, uh, no, I'd, I'd be really interested to track down the footage of that and see see how it looked. Would you also be interested to know what the two longest uh, penalty shootouts in history were? Yeah, I was like racking my brain trying to think if I knew this. Well, the second longest, I'll start with that. And I can't believe you would not know about the Namibian Cup in 2005, Paul, but I'll, I'll help you out anyway. Uh, KK Palace and Civics, that was 48 spot kicks and Palace won 17-16. So that's a lot of misses in there. That's that's about a third of the penalties were missed. So that's bizarre. Uh, the longest ever one was only last year in 2022 between two teams from the northeast of England, Washington and Bedlington. 54 penalties were taken and uh, the shootout ended 25-24. But what I think is particularly funny about this is that there were 54 penalties but only 40 fans in attendance so there were more penalties in the shootout <laughs> than fans in the stadium now that is a stat that can't have happened very many times that's brilliant the thought of these players start flogging themselves just to get through and no one really caring <laughs> in the stands <laughs> it must take ages as well 54 yeah. penalties that must have been going for sort of i don't know the best part of an hour or something absolutely grueling <laughs> it probably it goes past the point where you've got that drama and it's suddenly people losing track of wait a minute did did they score did we <laughs> yeah you need you need you properly need somebody keeping keeping tabs there, don't you or you'd, you'd lose the score we're going to round off today's episode with uh, a reveal because we are going to a, a game this weekend i am going uh, to the coupe de france pool to see uh, fc saint mezieri who play in the sixth tier of French football, take on A.S. Pire of Tahiti. So it's not quite the dream that we've envisaged of accompanying a mainland team to one of these remote, far-flung places in the world. But I will be seeing uh, the Tahitians who have come at 33,000 kilometres, well, that will be there and back, uh, just to play a game of football. That's amazing. I, I'm I'm quite jealous of you going to see that, but um, that, I'm very glad someone from the sweeper is going. Not to give away who we're going to be supporting at all, but uh, I imagine you're you're going to be cheering for the visitors, surely. 
Absolutely, I will. I, I certainly will be because, you know, we want the overseas representatives to, to get as far as possible. I actually applied for accreditation for this game and I got a message back from the club saying all of our accreditation places have been allocated to journalists from French Polynesia. And I just thought they are making a longer journey than me. That's wow. OK. I That's can. amazing. So, so lots of journalists are coming over because so what I saw that was really interesting was that um, they, well, two things in fact. I, I believe the team they're playing against has a player from Tahiti in their ranks, and I wondered if that had anything to do with them deciding to choose to be one of the French teams that would host a foreign team. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. And I saw the other thing that they're on their team uh, on ASPRA's Facebook. They were welcomed by Miss Tahiti at the airport. Uh, interesting. So I'm presuming she must now live in France, uh, unless they brought her along to welcome them at the airport from Tahiti. Uh, I can actually fill you in on that, Paul, because this is mm. brilliant. Uh, so they were welcomed by Miss Tahiti because she's taking part in the Miss France beauty pageant next month. So basically, <laughs> the Miss France is the beauty equivalent of the Coupe de France because they <laughs> actually invite a representative from the overseas territories. So they've got like a beauty queen coming over from New Caledonia, from saint Barthélemy, like all of these overseas territories it is basically the same. That's absolutely amazing. I would never have guessed that that's the... So she's sort of got a lift over with them to be part of that issue then. Uh... Well, I don't know. You know, perhaps some of these people do live in France, but but nonetheless, like they do, they are officially representing the, the overseas territory in, in the beauty pageant. Well, that is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And um, if nothing else, you're about to witness some of the coldest people in history, surely. They're, they're all um, they're airport shot. They're all like in short sleeves and just looking really like, you know, eh, ready for this. And then I can only imagine how cold they must be when they got out of that airport. Somebody actually put on Twitter, it was like two photos side by side of Piray. So this beautiful blue ocean palm trees and then next to it saint mesmer which is where i'm going which just i mean it looked very unappealing to be honest so the the contrast between the two of them i think uh, i would rather be going to tahiti but but it is what it is and we will be there so follow us at sweeperpod on twitter or instagram or wherever we'll be uploading a lot of content from that game on saturday that's saturday the 18th of november any more business to chuck in there, Paul, before we round off another episode? No, I think that's I think that's probably everything for now. That was a pretty packed one, wasn't it? Um, we'll we'll definitely be keeping an eye on the World Cup qualifiers and the Pacific Games coming up. So there'll be lots and lots of stuff on our on our sweeper account for keeping an eye on some of the minnows of world football uh, getting back on the field. And on the next pod, we're going to do a Coupe de France segment as well. So that will be reflecting on my experience at the game with ASP Ray. And also, uh, we will just do a bit of an overview with all the overseas territories taking part, where their teams come in, what distances they're traveling. So if you're interested in that, tune in to our next main episode. Uh, that episode will be out on Wednesday, the 29th of November. And if you want to hear from us before, then don't forget, we'll have a bonus pod out on the 22nd on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash sweeper pod. See you soon. 